Welcome to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast, the show that offers you tips and strategies to help speakers build the business of their dreams. Now, here's your host, 30-year industry veteran and business coach, Jane Atkinson. Well, welcome everyone to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. You are in for a treat today. We have asked Patricia Fripp to join us to talk about powerful, persuasive presentations, either in person, online, or virtual. Welcome to the show, Patricia. Thrilled to be with you. I feel wealthier just talking to you. (laughs) It's weird for me to call you Patricia. I've been calling you Ms. Fripp for years. And so even to use your regular given name is uh, kind of odd for me. But let's give everybody, we've known each other for a really long time. Let's give everybody a snapshot of your career. Thank you. Well, I turned up at my first National Speakers Association convention as a hairstylist, a very successful men's hairstylist who was traveling nationwide for a hair product company that I was paid quite nicely for. And as you always talk to your hairstylist, all my clients in the financial district of San Francisco were movers and shakers and wheelers and dealers and the very least up and coming ambitious young stockbrokers. <laughs> they used to say, oh, well, if you're speaking, come talk to my Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, Breakfast Club. Hey, can you speak at my staff meeting? And after two free speeches, I realized, Jane, this is the least expensive way I can promote my business. Because at that point, I was solidly booked. My first appointment was seven o'clock in the morning and very often seven o'clock at night. No lunch break. I mean, you say, excuse me, I'm getting a fresh towel. You walk back, devour your sandwich in two (laughs) gulps and come back again. So this gave me a good excuse to get out of the office. And although I was solidly booked, my staff were good, but they weren't promoters like me. They went home in the evening. They didn't go to Harpoon Louis, flirt with the stockbrokers and pass out your business cards. (laughs) These days we call it networking. Those days it was flirting with the cute stockbrokers. Anyway, at NSA, that first convention, I was two years into a 10-year lease. And I went because all my pals and I in the Dale Carnegie class went every seminar, every rally we heard about. And I heard and found out he lived in the area and he was kind enough to talk to me. Chris Hegarty, CPA, a wonderful man. And he said, Patricia, you must go to the National Speakers Association Convention. And I have always believed if someone you admire and wish to emulate, gives you advice. You don't ask how much does it cost. Now, maybe sometimes you need to, but I just signed up and went. I was already a member, so I signed up and went. Thinking no one wants to talk to me, I'm going to speak to Rotary Clubs and hairdressers, and two situations appeared. One, I saw the vision of what could be possible because I started my hairstyling career at 15, At the time I went to NSA, I was two years into my 10-year lease, and that goal, so in eight years, I thought it would be nice to be in a position to be a speaker. 
and I love being in the hairstyling business. I I start I went all there. I used to demonstrate at the Las Vegas shows. My haircuts were in magazines. I mean, I was loving uh, on top of the world. So when I saw the possibility, and as you well know, Jane, so often speakers get the vision, I want to do that, but they think it's going to happen in a year. Overnight success takes I used to say seven years. Brian Tracy said, I heard Fripp say that and she was right. <laughs> so for me in the speaking business, I would say it took seven years because I sold my hairstyling salon a year ahead of schedule when I became president of NSA. But I sought the vision. And secondly, and this is only in America and at the National Speakers Association, I walked in to have lunch and I didn't know anyone. There were three people sitting there, three men, and I was young and cute. And I said, may I join you? To cut a long story short, one of the men there said, I'm in charge of a program for speakers, new speakers called Speak to Me, and new speakers can get up and do 10 minutes. You want to be on the program? I said, yes. After my 10-minute speech to a packed room, there were 35 people jammed into this almost boardroom. <laughs> And Mike Frank came up to me, who was a big promoter, just a wonderful gentleman, speaker bureau. He said, you're the best woman speaker I've ever heard. Do you have a brochure? I said, no. He called me a month later and booked me to speak to 2,000 people on the same program with Dr. Robert Shuler, the minister from Garden Grove, who in the day was one of the biggest speakers. I remember, yes. So that happened at my first NSA convention. And, and to be honest, that was total luck. That was luck. However, it propelled my career probably faster than it would have happened. I love I, I Sorry, continue. No, no, that's fine. Well, I, I, I want people to hear you telling the story and really recognize that these stories are the keys to why you have been so successful. Do you remember what you even said at that first NSA convention? Well, I, I got up and I delivered 10 minutes of my best Rotary Club material. Okay. Which was, and the big the big question that everyone has early in our careers, we like speaking, but what on earth can we talk about? Right. And the advice I would now give to speakers that I worked out on my own, I was thinking, well, what do I know? You know, I'm not an expert in anything. And then it hit me. I absolutely am an expert at getting, keeping and deserving customers, of promoting a smaller, medium sized business. And these were my first subjects. And this is so I had real life examples of what I did. I had brilliant ideas and suggestions from my my clients. See, I I used being a hairstylist in it was a very posh salon when I did my apprenticeship in England. I'd always worked in really posh, high end salons that gave you access to develop relationships with people I would never have met socially. And so I used to say to people, you know, what did you do with your little company that a big company wanted to pay you millions of dollars? Right. What made you 
the best salesperson in your company. I was using this as an education. I kept a tape recorder. Yeah, a tape, cassette tape in my booth. And whenever I'd ask my clients these stories, I say, okay, I need you to say it there. I'm going to record it. And because, again, whether you are learning to develop your your content and your delivery or whether you're learning to develop great virtual presentations, you need to practice. And what got me to the point that Mike Frank saw I had great potential Mm -hmm. is because I created groups to speak to. I I trained all my stylists to say, if you'll get a group of 20 people together, Patricia will come give you a free speech on customer service or promoting your business. So because our clients had great businesses, these became my first paid customers because, of course, I would speak for nothing just to promote my business because I'd speak at eight o'clock in the morning and I would look around, would have three new clients in my stylist chains because I knew I have to get my staff solidly booked so I can leave because I was leaving for once I left home for five and a half weeks without coming back on a speaking tour. Anyway, I digress. At the beginning, you have to get good. You speak to everyone. And yes, they're all the service clubs. However, speaking for our client companies, and when I went full-time in 84, my first five weeks work were in Morristown, New Jersey for AT&T. The first contact came from Gary Hickox, who was a younger than I am, said to his boss, hey, I can bring a speaker for our staff meeting. It was his hairstylist. But these relationships, Bob Kessler, at more business forms, paid me my first speech, $75 in business forms. The last time he booked me, was to 2,000 people in Hawaii that came from 16 countries because as his career developed and I became a full-time speaker, he took me with him. Mm, Such a good I I know to shorten this story, (laughs) so this is how I developed and in 1984, I was already traveling at least 50% of my time. I'd be speaking for IBM in Texas. And the next morning, uh, you know, when I got home, I'd be in the salon at seven in the morning. And this is what people don't realize. One, you don't quit your day job. You use speaking to promote your business, even if you work for someone else. But you got to say, hey, boss, this is great. You know, I love speaking. This is great PR for our company. Is it okay if I'm longer out at lunchtime? Or can I accept speaking at our good customer sales meeting? It's great PR for us. So you have to speak a lot. And then also, you. I was one of the first speakers to have a demo VHS, a high quality put together by a TV producer friend of mine to have fancy press kits because I wasn't living off the money I was making as a speaker. Right, right. I was living off my salon. And so all money I made. Now, again, I was lucky. 
this was at a time when women, it was a different world. Mike Frank, who discovered me, was the first speaker bureau to really promote women. And he used to say, would you consider a woman? Some said yes, some said no. Even women, direct sales full of women, were hiring men. And women speakers were getting begun. Anyway, there weren't that many. And because I had great promotions and I was in business, I was not as funny as Jeannie Robertson. You want a humorous, you had Jeannie Robertson. But even Jeannie say, Jeannie, they, Jeannie say, Fripp, they want four hours. I can't do that. I'm yeah. recommending you. What also helped me, I learned to customize presentations. And I learned from a great friend of ours, George Morrissey, mm. who died very recently. Mm -hmm. And every time I was speaking for an NSA chapter saying, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell him what you taught me, George. I used to call and tell him because when you're in your 90s and you had a great career, it's very important to know people didn't forget you. Anyway, so George taught me. He went out to be a mystery shopper. So I became a mystery shopper. I went to on sales calls with my clients. I, I learned to customize. So that propelled. So when I became president of NSA, which was, of course, decades ago, I was doing very well. That's when meetings and conventions said Fripp's one of the 10 most electrifying speakers in North America. You know, you don't believe your own press, but you use it to your advantage. Yes. Probably in the, I don't know if it was in the middle 90s. I made a comment at NSA, and that is, keynote speakers cannot expect to be the flavor of the month for more than 20 years with speakers bureaus. And believe me, I was milking it to death. I was delivering 100 to 120 keynotes a year, probably 75% booked by speakers bureaus. But I knew if I want a long-term career, People aren't going to be paying me. I won't be the young, hot, glamorous, hot, young speaker for, for that many decades. And the turning point for my career, Jay, and this is what we all have to look at, is what do people want to pay us for? Now, I was also the first person at NSA that said, I work with speakers bureaus and, and I took screenwriting classes, comedy writing classes. But understand, this is for fun. This is I love doing, you know, I even hired a choreographer. I met him. I said, do you know anything about speaking? He said, no. I said, great. I want to pay you to watch me deliver a three-hour seminar and tell me what you think from your point of view, from a different discipline. And he gave me one piece of advice that is amazing. He said, Patricia, you do a marvelous job with the width of the stage. You don't do enough with the depth of the stage. And I know people think, well, that's very clever, but what does that mean? <gasps> well, if you've ever seen me talk about how to deliver a powerful, persuasive presentation, this would be in person, not virtual, of course. It would be deliver your opening, two steps forward into the body of your speech. And then as you're doing your review, 
And then you say, last story, two steps forward in silence for dramatic effect. You never do it too many times. Otherwise, it looks like a technique. Because mm-hmm. as Laurence Olivier said, the art is hiding the art, and then you deliver your clothes. But if you're not spaced on the stage, that you have the room to do that drama. So that was one way I took his advice. Anyway, the turning point was when a national sales manager said to me, Patricia, I liked your speech but I loved how you delivered it. Can you teach our salespeople to speak that way? Because it takes us a year to be in a position to deliver an hour presentation for a hospital board. And we are losing business, has nothing to do with our offering or our pricing. I keep hearing that the sales presentation of our competitors are better than ours. And as I put together that program, which is nothing compared to what I now do, I did not realize, but it soon clicked in. She had just given me the secret to always be in demand to talk about what I love talking about, which is presentations. And it doesn't matter what the economy is, people invest in their salespeople, and it doesn't matter that I might not look quite as good on iMag as I might have done 20 years ago. So that was one. And the second turning point, which leads us into, of course, our subject for today. I always, you know, I I had worked with speech coaches and people used to say, Patricia, can you help our executive with his presentation? He doesn't have much charisma while you're here. So I'd help clients that ask like this. And a lot of my speaker friends, not quite as established, said, can you help me? And But I didn't feel, you know, if I hire speech coaches, how can I be one? Until a magical day, I was speaking for a personnel company in the East Bay, 35 minutes from my house. The president spoke. I spoke, we had lunch, and she said, do you do any speech coaching? And I said, oh, a little for some of my friends. And she said, I wish I was one of your friends. Uh I drove home and got a voicemail. And this dynamic, our kind of woman voice said, I don't know if you do this, However, if you do, I want to buy you for my husband for his birthday. Now, what a great opening line. And she said, seven of my salespeople came to one of your speaking schools and came back raving. I don't know if you do any executive speech coaching, but my husband's a good speaker. However, he has the most important speech of his career. And if you're a speech coach, I... I want to hire you. And I thought, okay, universe, God, whoever is looking down at me twice in an hour and a half, I got the message. And that was the day I put up my shingle. Yes, I'm an executive speech coach. So after being a keynote speaker and loving it, I remember the first time I, Jane, I looked out at six people and realized I was getting my keynote fee to help six people with their sales presentations. So now 
although I still keynote, I make my living and I spend a lot more time promoting, companies hire me to help them increase sales by perfecting the important conversations and presentations. Tech companies bring me in to coach a hundred brilliant engineers to speak at their customer and user conferences, which of course is all in Zoom. So I had a good five-year Zoom business long before the pandemic. And of course, I help executives, some good speakers who want to be great. So that's how I now make my living as a 43-year member of the National Speakers Association. Okay. Well, what an incredible career that you have had, my dear. Uh, let's talk about our topic for today, which is powerful presentations in person, online and virtual. Let's start with in person. Now, I love just hearing you tell stories. And I think that that's that alone is a really amazing demonstration for people to kind of hear you in action and do your thing. What would you say, in your opinion, are some live presentations are some of the key elements of a really amazing live presentation? Many of the principles for a live presentation also work in virtual. The difference with in-person is you have more ability to develop rapport with the audience. I've always been a great believer. You schmooze with the audience. You go to the conference early. And for a live presentation, it's important usually for the client that you can tie your presentation into their theme. And it's obvious that the audience knows you know who they are. Right. If there were one secret of giving a powerful persuasive presentation, it would be that the audience is interested in your subject. Right. Now, that sounds obvious. However, the audience has to be able to see that you know who they are and we have to speak as an audience advocate. You might give them, this is my opinion and my experience. Now, this is how it applies to you in the hospitality industry. Right, right, right. What what would you do in terms of research, preparing for a presentation? Let's uh, break it down for emerging speakers, what they might do for research. I actually love to share some of the secrets of our more seasoned speakers. How much research are you doing before you go into a presentation in either way, virtual or live? Being very clear, what is the objective and how will they feel you exceeded their expectation? Right. Okay. That's the really the champion of the program or the conference. Right. And whenever possible, interview their board of directors, their customers, their whoever the audience makeup is. Then looking at, we all have our core presentation, however, personalizing it to this group. So I remember I used to have a talk at where you have to admit mistakes and you have to take advantage of opportunity. And I would go through. Now, when I say take advantage of opportunity, does anything come to mind? 
Now, would everybody know about this? Is this industry, company, or division? When I talk about mistakes, does anything come to mind? And it has to be immediate. Uh, for example, I was speaking for the California Bot Coca-Cola Bottlers Association. Okay. And, and I said, who amongst us will ever forget the 7-Eleven commemorative glass? Everyone laughed hysterically. I wasn't even sure what it was, right. but that was a mistake. Right. You know, right. So, and and whenever you have, whenever you have what is an inside joke, mm. assuming everyone knows, they will give you more laughter than any other universal funny comment. Okay, so your goal is to get in there and mine for the inside track. I love that. Yes. Then, for example, with Bartlett Trees. Now, Bartlett Tree was a wonderful company. They were 98 years old when they hired me. And they even had a guy who'd been on the payroll for 57 years. This was a nice company. And I, I went for the entire conference, which was always my habit. I like being in hotels. But what I would do, Jane, is always sit, especially if I was going to close the conference. I would sit through and listen to the executives, listen to the other speakers. And I would always ask myself, what does that remind me of? What does that remind me of? And if, if a comment that an executive made reminded me of content that, that's part of my repertoire, that had not, I hadn't intended to say I would add it in. Mm, beautiful. And so I got up on the fourth day. This was, I believe, the fifth day of the conference, if you include the opening cocktail party the night before. Mm -hmm. I was the fourth speaker. And I walked on stage and said, I called the Bartlett office and said, I need someone to come fertilize my trees. But I, I, I have to be honest, I, I only have two trees, so I'll never be a big customer. To which Marilyn, who had worked in the San Francisco office for a month, said, oh, madam, we don't have any little customers. Everyone's equally important to us. And I wish you could have been there the day my very own Bartlett tree expert came to call. I spent $195 having two having two trees fertilized. I made two of their associates heroes. They never, ever remembered the names of the other speakers. I know because when I got follow-up work, you'll say, well, how can you beat being a customer? You go to work for them for a day. Then... Another time for the, this was the Recreational Vehicles Association. And they said, Patricia, you know, we don't expect you to be an industry expert. We got one of those. We just want you. We've heard your talk. We love you. Well, it's not good enough. Just because they're not satisfied. I took one day of my life and I went out as a mystery shopper mm -hmm. for seven different recreational vehicle companies. And made a report, because this is what I'd learned from George Morrissey, who had spoken for the California Recreational Vehicles, pretend to be a prospect. And, you know, so I, 
and and for ages they considered me an industry expert at manufactured housing. Hilarious, hilarious. You know, so it's different ways, but it's trying to do more and understand more. I want people to understand that your career has spanned four decades because you are willing to invest not only the time that it would take to go and sit day by day at a conference waiting for your turn to speak, but investing in your trees when you only had two trees, $200 out of your pocket to see what the service was like. I think that that's something that isn't as common today, Patricia, as it has been. And I think that it's really important that people recognize that you need to invest in your clients and that it will come back to you in spades. Yes, definitely. And Again, this was fun. You know, it's, it, oh, dear, day, day. No, I find this fun. I love it. I love it. Because business has always interested me. Yeah. So one, and this is important if you're on your way up, if you are customizing and personalizing your message, they are going to forgive you a lot more while you're perfecting your delivery skills. Right. You've got a little leeway. So that's that would be first. Probably that is the most important aspect is every presentation needs to focus on this audience at this time. Right. This audience at this time, you know, someone who was a master of that. And I want to give him his family a shout out was the incredible Tom Winninger. Exactly. Because he was the industry expert. Yes. When I spoke for the manufactured housing and I bet Tom had done what I did years ago, but I had the up to date. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I wanted people to know that um, everything that I know about the speaking industry started at the feet of Tom Winninger. Mm -hmm. He had a book at one and a book at two series. That was an eight cassette audio. Oh, believe me, I bought them. I wore out the tapes in my my Mazda GLC that I drove to work and back working for my very first speaker. We learned so much from him. And I just wanted to give a shout out to his family and say how much he's meant. I know a lot to you and to me as well. Okay, let's switch over now and talk about virtual. You know, I haven't really talked to people about doing that same level of research for virtual that you would do for live. Talk a little bit about how your process would change for virtual. Next week, I am delivering four different virtual presentations at a sales meeting. The audiences are different areas of sales and the the professionals who do the demos. Okay. And so last week I interviewed five different, some of the gentlemen who do the demos, some of the salespeople, and I interviewed them about their process and what they feel if this presentation was for them, what do they need help with? And I asked them to give me demos and also 
pretend I'm a prospect and give me a sales presentation. So I record all these in Zoom, and this is part of my process today. I go through all the Zooms. I take what notes I need, copy and paste some of the presentations, and I come up with customer success stories, and I I teach them how to deliver a story in a couple of sentences and then a story in a happy customer story in two or three minutes. Mm. I find out and give credit to those what they did superbly well and say, now, nothing wrong with this. However, how about saying it this way? So I rewrite their sales presentations. And when I deliver it, I'll deliver the principles how to open with impact, how to build rapport, how to structure your presentation around the interests, challenges, or opportunities for the prospect, how you give them customer stories. And so I I give them the principles, but I give examples of what they are now doing that they could perhaps do even better. Beautiful. So Beautiful. it's it's a lot of work, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can't even imagine. So really, yeah. for virtual, you're still doing equally as much. And one of the things that I want people to pull out of this is that when you make the audience the hero of your stories, like yes. you did with Marilyn back with the tree people. Yeah. I think that could be done even more beautifully on Zoom because in a big audience of 500 people, you might get her to stand up, but now you can pin her to the screen or do something to make her feel even more special. And I really love that on virtual is uh, continuing that theme of making the audience the heroes of your stories. Okay. Beautiful. May I give another suggestion about virtual? And this was... I was delivering two, we call them webinars in those days, but they were virtual presentations long before it was our only choice. This was for Sherm in Mexico and Sherm in Barbados. And it was all about presentation skills. So I had my content. However, what we did was I took every photograph out And I had photographs of people from Mexico that looked like my audience looked. And, for example, I have one example about going into a coffee shop. Well, I found out what the most popular chain restaurant was in Mexico, and that was the image that went in when I told the story. And Then the person who hired me, I said, obviously, I'm delivering it in English. They speak in English, but I gave her my PowerPoint, and she put all the headlines in Spanish. Ah. We put the the Mexican flag on the cover page along with Zoom. So although it's content that I could deliver to any audience, it looked as if I wrote the presentation for them. For Barbados, we take all those out and we put people who look who come from Barbados in. Because I remember Jane being in Taiwan and all these wonderful department stores where they, they all the staff bow when the customers come in and all these beautiful images of the clothes you could buy. And it was all Americans because we said to the salespeople, doesn't this irritate you that the models don't look like you? 
Mm. Said no, these have well, it irritated me. <laughs> well, I love that you do that type of customization. Really think about whether the audience can see themselves in your slides. That's really a wonderful thing to be more aware of. You take a lot of time to do your homework. And I think that goes all the way back to your hairdressing days where you got and kept customers because you took the time to know about them. You you really provided a service that uh, nobody else was doing in those days. Talk a little bit about storytelling. In terms of virtual, can we do a 20-minute opening story on a virtual presentation? Do we have to trim things down? Virtual is shorter, longer? Speak about that a little bit. Zig Ziglar could tell a 20-minute story. However, if it's a 20-minute story, every element of the structure of your presentation has to be in there. And when people ask how long should a story be in any format, it's as long as it takes to get the point across and to keep the audience engaged. In general, one of the techniques on stories I teach, and this comes from Hollywood. A good friend of mine is a story consultant in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And one of his principles, Michael Haig, is get into the scene late. And one of the examples I do is say, imagine I'm telling a story. The opening line is, Mary had a problem. Now, what is the audience thinking? Uh, Who's Mary? What's her problem? Now you need to give your character a backstory. Mary was a seasoned HR professional. She'd worked in the most prestigious companies in Silicon Valley, heading up their HR departments. So now you've got Mary as a problem. You've given her a backstory. Now, with a good backstory, what do we now know about Mary that I don't or the speaker doesn't have to tell them? Mary eats problems for lunch. (laughs) Mary is the one that everyone comes to to solve their problems. So now you can't wait to hear, wow, this has got to be a big problem. (laughs) All right. And then in walks Jonas and Mary, we're about to be sued by for $28 million. And I think it was my fault. Three lines in, You've been introduced to two characters and you've got dialogue. A very important part of the story is we need to know the backstory. We need we don't have to say when Mary was at college, she always wanted to help people. And a counselor gave her these tests and said, Mary, HR would be a great career. And who cares? Get into the scene. And stories are about people. Now, I coach salespeople on how to tell happy customer stories. And I say, companies do business with companies, yes. But really, it's a person in your company sells to a person in their company. And people, if they're important, they need to have a name. 
Well, if you can't tell me the exact name, make one up. <laughs> but if they're the, the star of the story, we need to know John. Now, give him a backstory. He's a senior vice president of marketing. He was a 20-year veteran of. Just give me, because people make decisions differently if it's their third day on the job or if they're 20-year veteran. So this is all giving the audience information that they can make assumptions from without being told. And then customers, I mean, characters speak. So when I train salespeople, and these are also great success stories for speakers to tell. Imagine your customer, who is now the happy, satisfied customer, was a prospect. Imagine they called and said, help, and clearly articulated their problem. I know that isn't true. And it, by the time you talk to them, it might be three months of internal sales and trade shows. But what a story does is shrink time. And a story needs to be true, not 100% accurate. Right. We call that creative nonfiction. <laughs> yes. The principle is true. The problem is true. However, you don't really have 20 minutes. I like the idea of giving a villain character a name that is more villainous, you know, in, instead of like this really kind name, you give them <laughs> Richard or something like that. Because, <laughs> you know, something. Oh, that I know our friend Ed Tate. Yeah. You know, you, you can attribute a characteristic. Mr. I've never met anybody I ever liked walked up to the right. counter. Right, right. That's right. I love yeah. that. All right. Uh, really quickly, do we need to adjust our energy levels? Like I'm thinking about how your energy goes through the tiny little, teeny tiny little camera. And, and now we're getting all these other social media platforms, Clubhouse, et cetera. I just heard this tip on Clubhouse. You know, you really need to show up with some energy on Clubhouse or people are going to leave your room. And so the same thing I think goes for virtual is we really need to be aware of our energy levels. But Patricia, is it still a little bit of an ebb and flow throughout a presentation? You can't be all on, all in 100% of the time, right? What we need to create is what I call energetic intimacy with your Ooh. camera. Energetic intimacy. Because the advice I give to speakers, I don't care if you have 2,000 people in front of you, you mm -hmm. still talk to one. You can have 2,000 people in front of you and say, if I were to ask you, mm -hmm. and everyone hears the speaker is talking to me. Well, you've probably got 1,000 people watching but you're only talking to one person. If I were to ask you, I know what it's like. And you're probably thinking, so yes, just as we need to have vocal variety, we need to orchestrate our presentation and we need to orchestrate our movement in live presentations. Yes, we certainly need to do that. However, it takes focused attention and I can only speak for myself. 
I usually, after delivering it to our program virtually, which certainly takes even more rehearsal than live, I usually have to go lay down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're putting it all into the little hole in the camera and then you're done. I remember Kendra Hall telling me after doing a pre-recorded 15-minute presentation that was going to go out to 30,000 people that she collapsed afterwards. Oh, yeah. And that was only 15 minutes. So <laughs> and she's a youngster. So I am very... Uh, very appreciative of how much energy that it might take. Okay. One little side story. I want to make sure that we offer up. You have a handout for people. If they go to fripp.com forward slash handouts with an S. Yeah. Handouts with an S. What you will get, there is a, a special report, how to present and teach in a virtual world, which summarize all the best. And of course, oh, I've been delivering virtual presentations even before Zoom was, <laughs> was invented. And there's also fat and skinny words. How do you present information when you have, say, technical information when you have non-technical people and the Fripp speech diagram, suggestions of opening lines, the words and the techniques. There are videos on structuring your speech, making wow. your stories better. You're giving people a beautiful amount of information there. Most appreciated. Fripp.com forward slash handouts. Now, funny story. I was uh, sitting next to my husband as he was going on his phone and looking at videos. And he said, I'm trying to find this one video that has gone viral. And actually they've done a series of videos and they're gone viral. <laughs> and I lo- and I look at the name and I say, Robert Fripp, wait a second. I said, you met uh, Patricia Fripp in Vegas when I spoke down there for the chapter last year at uh, Marilyn Sherman's house. This is her brother. And so your brother has gone viral. Tell everybody how that even got started. Okay. Well, my brother, Robert Fripp, according to Rolling Stone magazine, is the 42nd best guitarist in the history of the world, living or dead. (laughs) He has a band called King Crimson, which in 2019, they had their 50th anniversary tour. Wow. His wife, Toya Wilcox, who is my brother's an international star. Toya is mostly a British star, but she is a one name, Toya. (laughs) She's she's an actress. She's been in movies with Laurence Olivier and Catherine Hepburn. uh, And she was a punk rock and roll star that is still belting out and very popular. And they began a series, Robert and Toya Locked Down Lunch, when the pandemic began to cheer up people who were locked at home. They do this every week so that now they have 11 months worth, 10 months worth, and they are a hoot and they have gone viral. I don't know if I should tell you what really hit them off. My (laughs) (laughs) sister-in-law in her 60s, 
She's younger than my brother, is in great shape. And she had an exercise series with very tight tops with no bra on, which people say is, oh, the backup singers are not here this week. (laughs) So for about four weeks, they went viral. And this is a point from my brother. When they were having a press conference for the 50th anniversary tour, and this does tie into the viral, but it ties in for speakers, Mm. consultants, coaches, really any entrepreneur. The editor of Rolling Stone magazine flew over from New York to London, and he said, Mr. Fripp, what is the purpose of the 50th anniversary tour of King Crimson. And my brother, who is the brilliant one in the family, an amazing speaker, anyone needs to go to YouTube and put in Robert Fripp and Patricia Fripp to see some of his speeches. He said to introduce King Crimson to innocent ears. (laughs) I love that Now let's take that simple idea What does that mean? They have a following that's followed them Since 1969 When they first Hit the headlines My brother likes playing in venues Two to four thousand people With no phones You know, you don't take video, you don't take flash photography, you will be pulled out. So his business partner said, we've been invited to play at Rock and Rio, 100,000 people outdoors, Mm -hmm. all video and flash. My brother says, sounds like a good idea because they now have an enormous following in their 20s. Now, if you think of the social media, I'm looking up this couple that has these innocent ears. Yeah. So you think, well, how does this apply to speakers? You know how people have all these online various legends and all these different virtual events. I always poo-pooed my uh, most of these. Now I'm doing them all. Yeah. Because you're introducing yourself to innocent ears. And this is, Jane, as you know, when I began my career, there was no social media. We didn't have email. We hadn't, we didn't even have the internet. (laughs) And young people look at me at NSA and well, how did you do it? (laughs) Customizing, developing relationships. We did it. So now with social media and virtual presentations, we can introduce our message to innocent innocent ears. I love it. Patricia Fripp, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with the Wealthy Speaker listeners today. I appreciate you and uh, have been loving this relationship that we've had for 30 years now. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. And keep making those speakers wealthy. (laughs) All right. And thank you for listening in. If you're listening at home, make sure that you let us know 
uh, you've appreciated what we're doing here today. Leave us a comment, a review. Make sure that you subscribe. And with that, we will say, see you soon, wealthy speakers. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. If you need help building the speaking business of your dreams, head over to WealthySpeakerSchool.com and take advantage of our 20-minute next step call. Thanks for listening to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast.